Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. All right, let's, let's jump back into Isaiah here. So last time in Isaiah, the claim from the people in Isaiah's time was, God has abandoned me. God doesn't care about my life. He doesn't care about me. And God's answer last time is like, what do you mean? And he picks up this theme again in chapter 50, where we're going to start today. And I want you to watch just how completely God destroys this idea that he has abandoned you, that he doesn't care about you. Right from the very beginning of chapter 50, he starts with this. He says, thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? Whom have I put thee away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? In other words, he's like, dude, if you think I have abandoned you, show me the divorce bill. There is none. Dude, show me which one of the creditors I sold you to. I don't have any creditors. I didn't abandon you. He says, behold, for your iniquities, you have sold yourselves. And for your transgressions is your mother put away. So he's like, hey. If you are in a a sticky situation, if you are feeling lost, like you chose to put yourself there. Now, that doesn't mean he says, I can't or I won't help you. In fact, he says, is my hand shortened at all that I cannot redeemed? Or have I no power to deliver? Dude, are you joking me? Behold, at my rebuke, I dry up the sea. Like, like he's like, you just want to talk about power? Like I say the word and the oceans are gone. I make the rivers a wilderness. Like the the fish will just be flopping on dry land, he says. He says, when I say the word, I clothe the heaven in blackness. Who contends with me? Who is my adversary? (laughs) Let him come near me. I love this line. Like, it's so like, you talking to me? I didn't think so. He's like, like, I don't have anybody who can take you away from me. In chapter 51, he says, see, lift up your eyes to the heavens. If you want to get a scope for this, just look on the earth. Just look at it. Because this earth is going to vanish away. This heavens are going to vanish away like smoke and the earth shall wax old like a garment. It's just going to fall apart. And everything's going to die there. But my salvation shall be forever. My righteousness shall not be abolished. One day the sun is going to explode and the earth is going to dissolve, but God is still going to be here, the creator of all of this. This is the scope he wants you to understand. It's you, he says, you who forget your maker. Behold all that ye kindle a fire that compass yourselves about with sparks. You walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks that ye have kindled. This shall ye have at my hand and ye shall lie down in sorrow. See, basically he is saying, instead of relying on me, instead of opening up the blinds of your life and letting his son, his, and this is a metaphor here, right? Instead of letting his radiant power flow into your life at no cost, we, we fr- frantically hit together flint and steel in a flurry of effort to create some meager sparks to live by. Like, instead of just opening ourselves up to his power, which he wants to freely give us, we live by sparks, he says. And as a result of living this way, he says in 51.13, thou hast feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor. He's like, just trying to, to manufacture your own happiness is such an, an anxious way to live. Or to put it another way in 5121, 
Therefore, hear now this, thou afflicted and drunken, but not with wine. He, he's just saying, hey, it's, it's like you're drunk. Like he's again saying, it's, it's a metaphor. You're not thinking clearly when you're just trying to manufacture your own light, striking together your own sparks. But it doesn't have to be this way. Wake up, awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. Thou has, that has drunken the dregs of the bitter trembling and wrung them out. Now, remember, dregs are the bitter end of coffee grounds or the, the wine pulp at the bottom of the bottle. It's, it's unpleasant. And he's saying, you have been in an unpleasant situation of your own making, trying to manufacture happiness in your life, trying to ensure that nothing bad ever happens, trying to control everything. To make sure that everything good always happens, that everybody always loves you and nobody hates you. It's an exhausting way to live trying to keep those sparks going. But he's saying there's an absolutely different way here. Uh, There's another way. Here's how you start, he says. He says, hearken unto me. Ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord, look to the rock whence ye are hewn and the hole of the pit when she are digged. Look into Abraham, your father, and to Sarah that bear you. Now, again, he speaks poetically, and sometimes it's hard to follow. And again, if you're struggling to follow Isaiah, one of the first things you might try doing is go into the NIV, a more modern English translation. That way you're not trying to deal with his poetry and the Shakespearean type uh, English right here. But what he's saying here. If you want a different way to live, if you're tired of trying to manufacture your own happiness all the time, how about you try this? Remember who you are. Like we live in a society that says love everyone all the time, but also loves categories and labels. We like, we like to say I am and fill in whatever the blank of category you fit in. And even when we say, I'm neither this nor that, you're still putting yourself in a category like staying away from those. The, the problem with every classification we could possibly make is that they're all self-invented. And it's that same problem of slapping out sparks with a survival fire starter, hoping we can gather up enough sparks to make light and warmth in our life. Isaiah is pointing you to a completely different starting point. He's saying you don't have to manufacture your own happiness. And I know that sounds weird coming from like an American pull yourself up by the bootstraps type of thing. He says, start with this starting point. Consider who you are as a son or daughter of God, as a descendant of Abraham through birth and covenant rebirth. He's saying your happiness, joy, and identity is not something you earn, but something you are given. It's some part of just who you are. You are God's family, Zion, and the Lord shall comfort Zion, and he will comfort all her waste places, all those places you struggle in. He will make her wilderness, the the desolation of sagebrush like Eden. And her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. So wake up from all this self-idolatrous, I gotta fix it all stupor. Awake, awake and put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem. Uh, This is referencing being clothed in the royal robes you receive, right? 
Now, remember, kingship doesn't come through merit. It comes through birth. It is just who you are. So recognize that identity and move into that role. Shake thyself from the dust, arise and sit down. Wait, which is it? Do you want me to stand up or sit down? Both. He's saying stand up from the dirt, from the frustrating situation you find yourself in and take your seat on the throne. O Jerusalem, loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. He's saying it's within your capacity to choose. For thus saith the Lord, ye have sold yourself for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. He's like, you sold yourself for a stupid idea. But I got this. It won't even cost me anything, basically. I'll redeem you without money. Now, I'm not minimizing the atonement here. Please don't misread it. But he, he's saying, I am capable here. Ho, every, this is chapter 55, verse 1. Everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. This theme of living waters you've seen throughout the the prophetic book so far, especially this image of waters going out to the desert and healing the land. And you're going to see it all over the place in the prophetic books. Watch for it, okay? Everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, no merits, no reason to believe God would save you. Come, buy and eat. You have no reason to believe God would accept you. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without merit, without price. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which satisfieth not. Like you are spinning your wheels trying to be happy and you don't feel happy. So step one is to recognize your true identity as children of God. Step two, everyone that thirsteth come ye to the waters. Let's talk about this idea. What does it mean? Like God, the son of God, when he comes to earth to offer us redemption, he talks about this concept of coming to the waters. And he travels from place to place offering this same compelling invitation to experience freedom through connection with him, to drink waters by connecting with him. And one day, hot and dry, as you can imagine, walking through the Middle East um, without an insulated metal thermos with all your stickers on it to keep your water cold, Jesus and his disciples stop outside of a town around noon right when the sun is just straight blazing. And a woman approaches, as you remember, she's a Samaritan and Jews and Samaritans have had a rough history. Remember the stories we told back in Ezra and Nehemiah of the deliberate excluding, shouting the message, you have no place in Israel to the Samaritans. Well, that that vibe is alive and well in Jesus's time. And anyway, wells aren't like drinking fountains. You have to bring out your own rope and bucket in order to fill your vessels. Seriously, everything in the ancient world is so hard and exhausting. I want nothing to do with time travel. Anyway, Jesus asks for some water. And she, having been brought up constantly excluded by other Jews, is like, cute. When you want something, you come to me. But won't that make you dirty to get water from some trash Samaritan? And Jesus gives her an interesting response. Remember, we're talking Isaiah, right? Come and drink. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God, notice the language is coming back to that Isaiah language of a free gift. If you understood this free gift and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you 
living water. Now, this is kind of confusing. And sometimes we read the story feeling all sorts of superior to her that she just doesn't get it and I get it. But I got to say, if I were with her in the context, sitting next to her saying, I would be like, I don't get it. And throwing some side eye looks at anybody nearby like, can you believe this guy? What is he talking about? So she's like, how are you going to give me living water? You don't even have a bucket. And he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whosoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Okay, she's like, let's do it. Hook me up with this living water. And then they they go on to have a further discussion that reveals that he's not just talking nonsense, but he knows things about her that no stranger would know. And so she says she perceives um, like who he is and, and, and she wants access to this quote unquote water or life sustaining flow or this force. And, and she, she's like, I, I know that access to this, this water or this life sustaining force or this power is rooted in worship. So she asks a wonderful question here. She asks, how do I worship properly? So I can access this water. She like she she gets it quick here and asks a really appropriate question. Woman, Jesus replies, believe me. A time is coming when you shall worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. It's not about location, he's saying. A time is coming and now has come and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit. So he's talking about a time coming where worship will change and she is still confused a little bit. And so she, she gives the, an answer that is kind of like Nephi when he says, I know that God loves us. She says, I know Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And he's like, ah, you're getting it. Even if you don't know it, you're getting it. And he says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. She feels it. She feels that this guy is the key to having this living water, this power flow into her life. And she runs off and tells her friends. They listen and they're convinced that he's the savior, the one Isaiah is talking about. Remember Isaiah's quote, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. He that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come by wine and milk without money and without price. Now, a little while later, after Jesus' experience with this Samaritan woman at the well, he travels to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This is like a party that lasts all week long. It happens right after the harvest, so there's enough food and everybody gets together with their family to rest and recharge. But instead of renting an Airbnb, everybody builds these temporary shelters like these lean-tos or tents that you stay in all week. And it's supposed to be this physical reminder of what it was like to be an Israelite rescued by God from slavery, fed by God in the desert with manna, surviving purely on His grace and goodness. And on the first morning of this Feast of Tabernacles, there's this parade, this procession of priests that go down to the Pool of Salome and bring up to the temple a golden container of water 
that's going to be sufficient to last the rituals through the seven days of the feast. And, and the whole thing is a big deal, a huge parade. They, they blow, blow that shofar, which sounds like the, the horn of Gondor being blown, summoning everybody just to gather up. And then the water is taken through the water gate of the temple. Then at the altar, after reciting some psalms, the, the priest on duty pours out some of the water using a silver bowl. And it's this symbolic prayer, just like incense smoke in the, the temple is like a prayer. Um, the prayer was poured out for everyone. Um, and, and everybody recognized that this is an expression of their dependence on God to pour out his blessings of rain upon the earth so they could have another harvest and continue to live. This whole thing is about how they depend so completely on God. And after every day of this kind of ritual remembering God, on the last day of this feast, where the, this water ceremony reached its climax, the priests circle the altar seven times, pour out the water, and then shout Hoshana, Rabana, Hoshiana. And the, we would say it, Hosanna, like, save us now, save us now, save us now, God. We rely completely on you. We're putting our lives in, in the hands. And as they're shouting out, Hosanna, Jesus shouts from the back, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me shall have rivers of living water flow out of them. Dang. Imagine the chaos after this proclamation. The priest had just poured out the water as an appeal to the creator God to provide water for the people. And Jesus, as if an answer to this prayer, tells the people to come unto him for water. And the significance is not lost on the audience there. Jesus is proclaiming to be the creator himself, offering them again living water. This cool, fresh spring water. And, and in the land of Israel, in the desert, you can imagine how precious water is. Like, like you either have to like collect rainwater, and then many times there's not enough rain to collect, or you could dig a well. But the, the most prized source of water is a spring. Spring water is living water. It's the sweetest, most consistent, coolest and even when all other sources dry up, springs continue. It's like, what great symbolism, living water, spring water. I am the true spring. This is the water Jesus promised, the, the best water, real spiritual satisfaction, better than any of these other substitutes. This is what we all want. Like truly, the, what Jesus is offering is what we really want in life. Like if we found a genie in some secret lamp, we, we would all wish for things like satisfying relationships and money and stuff. But I'm telling you, we don't really want those things. And I know you're like, I don't know, I kind of really want a boat. That sounds fun. Yeah, I get you. I do too. But what we really want is to feel love and joy. And we believe that that way of life would be joyful. But what if instead you ask the genie to, to fill a constant flow of joy and love sustaining your life? Well, yeah. Then the rest is just gravy. Obviously, that's what I want. That is what Jesus is offering then and now. 
That is what Isaiah is saying Jesus offers. That is what he's saying the true creator brings. But the thing is, most people don't take Jesus up on this offer to fill them up with a spring of living water and power, just such redemptive love and peace that they can't imagine. It seems too abstract, too impossible. So they just stick to what they know, trying to make their own little sparks and hoping for the best. That's why Isaiah says in chapter 50, verse 2, Wherefore, when I came, there was no man. When I called, there was none that answered. Because people just choose not to listen. Or, or he describes this methodology a different way in chapter 55, verse 8 and 9. He says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My way of solving your problems are not going to be the way you think they're going to be solved. Neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like you grew up in an underground bunker after some crazy zombie apocalypse. And all you have known throughout your life is the meager light you can get from some of those shake flashlights. You know what I'm talking about. You have them in your survival kit. All other sources of light have long since ceased. And you charge up your shake light and you read this old book that talks about light you don't have to create. It just is. It radiates so brightly it actually creates warmth. It illuminates vast expanses. It's so comforting people used to bathe in this light source. Like we are obviously like, well, duh, the sun. Well, duh. And that's where these Jews and are then. And honestly, that's where most of us are now. We cannot conceptualize of joy, happiness, love, and contentment just flowing into us without us creating it without shaking that flashlight like crazy for a few flashes of brilliance. But Jesus is declaring, if you will just walk out of the bunker, if you will just trust me, I'll infuse you with all you really want. But how? How does he generate this spirit, joy, love, power, grace, whatever you want to call it, this light, this water, and why would he just dump it all on us, on anybody who was willing? Wouldn't you hoard a resource like that? Well, Isaiah has some insight on this too. Talking about Jesus, like removing all these obstacles to God's living water, light flowing freely into your life. He says, Jesus will come to earth on this rescue mission. And in chapter 53, verse 2, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. And this is a comment on, on Nazareth where he'll grow up. Saying straight up from the beginning, it's going to be rough for him. Not only will he experience the crushing poverty and hardship of growing up in a podunk nowheresville Nazareth, He'll also grow up in a highly religious society that saw his mom go off for three months and come back pregnant before she was married. And if you think Jesus didn't hear about that growing up, then you don't know anything about small towns. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Why does that matter on this rescue mission? Well, it matters because there are two things that stop us from experiencing the flow of God's love. 
First is the hardship and pain of life, sickness, death, pain, all forms of pain, physical, mental pain, emotional, social pain. These pains cause us to retreat into our figurative bunkers and miss out on the light he offers. Not that the light isn't there, but we have retreated and closed ourselves off to it. And the second thing that limits us, our access to this light, is the reality of Satan and evil. When we act contrary to God's nature and serve Satan rather than God, we remove ourselves from that flow of light. So what Jesus does is he provides a way to overcome these two things. He enters fully into the pain of mortality, culminating with the pain of death, and he enters fully into the captivity of Satan. But then in a twist, he walks out the other side of that dark forest and therefore provides an escape route for the rest of us, a way to come have spring water flow nonstop into our souls if we will open to it. But let's talk about this descent into the dark forests of pain that we're all trying to avoid. Like we said, it it starts where he grew up, but then Isaiah goes on. He hath no no form of come, he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So he comes to earth and he feels the pain of us. But second thing he does is he he lives a, a complete mortal life, which means he feels a full scope of pain. He is despised. So often we want to control everything where everybody likes us and nobody hates us. But here he's saying he is despised and rejected. Uh, Dude, how much of our worries in our lives are spent making sure that that we're not rejected or, or nobody says anything mean to us? A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He, he is fully acquainted with sorrow. We do not have to avoid hardship in order to have this light flow into our lives. Then he voluntarily, literally walks into the dark forest and gives himself over to Satan in the Garden of Gethsemane, who obscures all light from the Creator. And the consequence is so very heavy. Isaiah says it this way, Surely he hath borne our, our griefs, carried our sorrows, and we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, with his his whip marks, we are healed. You remember how it goes, right? Matthew 26. Then cometh Jesus with them to a place called Gethsemane. Then he said, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry you here and watch with me. And he went a little further 
and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take this cup from me. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Then he is betrayed, beaten, just beaten, bloody, the sickening smack of fist on flesh, first by the Sanhedrin, then by Herod, and finally scourged by Pilate till his skin is in tattered. Isaiah talks about it. I gave my back to the smiters, my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore I have set my face as flint. And I know that I shall not be ashamed. I have set my face as flint. He just takes it. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and a sheep before the shears is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. He takes the full onslaught. He doesn't say a thing. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he hath done no violence. Neither was there any deceit in his mouth. And even though he is completely innocent, he dies. The final culmination of pain on this earth, the thing we fear perhaps most. Nails per- piercing through the nerves of his body, dying in a combination of asphyxiation and blood loss. Isaiah 53 again, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall say, he shall see his seed. That, that line is huge. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. Why does he do this? Because in that moment, Isaiah says, he sees you. Oh. He does it for you. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. Notice that imagery of living water, this spring, this pouring out. Poured out his soul becomes the living water. The grace, the light, the spirit that he pours out upon us. And he was numbered with the transgressor. He bare the sin of many and he made intercession for the transgressions. He saw you and he goes into this darkness to stand in between you and suffering. So what does that mean for us? Chapter 54 is this beautiful poem of what it means. It means, sing, O barren, thou that did not bear children. Now, this is a direct reference to to the kind of original poetry in the Old Testament. This Hannah reference where Hannah is barren and can't have children, goes to the Lord and the Lord provides. And and he, he says, break forth into singing, cry aloud, thou that did not prevail, travail with children. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent and stretch 
forth the curtains of thine habitation. Spare not, lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes, for thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed. For thy maker is thine husband, thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, she shall be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit. For a small moment I have forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy redeemer. This imagery, he's like, you suffered, man, it was hard. Like somebody who, who wanted kids so badly, but you couldn't have them. He's like, listen, you're going to have so many kids, this metaphor for joy. He's like, so many kids, you won't have room for them. You'll have to remodel the house. He, he's saying, if you will just trust me, I will fill you with living water, light, love and joy you can't imagine. Stop trying so hard to manufacture it yourself and just trust me. For the mountains shall depart and the hills shall be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest and not comforted. Behold, I will lay stones with fair colors. I will lay thy foundation with sapphires. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt not, thou shalt be far from oppression. Thou shalt not fear. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. So let him in. And then let other people know about this so that they can come into a covenant with Jesus and they can relax and let go of all they have worried about and instead trust Jesus and have real power begin to flow into their lives. Talking about this, those that share this message of hope, Isaiah says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet, the feet, the nasty feet. How beautiful are the feet of him that publishes good tidings and publishes peace and bringeth good tidings of good, that publishes salvation and saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth, God is in control. Break forth into joy and sing together, ye waste places. For God has comforted people and has, hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm. Like he's coming in strength. Depart ye, depart ye, go out from thence. For ye shall not go out with haste nor by flight. For the Lord will go before you. And the God of Israel will be behind you. Here's what I'm saying, and I, I, I do not know how best to explain this, but I'm saying just take a second to relax. Maybe you even just take in a deep breath right here and let it go and know that the creator of this world has torn down all that obscures light love and flow and it is there waiting for you but who he is he will not drag you out into the sun but if you will trust that he has actually done what he has said he has done and trust that he can actually provide you with the the living spring water this renewal this joy this hope if you will trust and make that decision over and over again
and let go with whatever objections, whatever sin, whatever struggles, whatever self-idolatrous light manufacture system you've got going on. Just let it go. And then just watch the light flow in. And then you can go interact with people and really be with people. You can walk outside and really enjoy the creation of this earth. You can experience extremely difficult things and they won't hold you. This is the secret of life. The living son of God is the anointed one, the chosen one. The secret. Pray and give all that is holding you back to him and then stand up from that prayer and act like it's real. Have faith enough to let it go. Relax and let, allow that living water, that free gift to flow into your lives and watch how different it is to be alive in a different way in the world. Relax, trust Jesus, and let it go. And watch the light flow in. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.